This podcast is brought to you by the Immigration Law Series by Emond Publishing, Canada's leading independent legal publisher. Welcome home, everybody. This is a podcast about Canadian immigration law. If you're an immigration practitioner or a student looking to get into this area, or maybe just someone looking to learn about immigration, this is a podcast for and about you. Chantal and I will tell you what you need to know, bring you expert guests to share their wisdom, and we're all going to have a lot of fun doing it. So sit back, enjoy, and welcome home. And now, Chantal is going to do some interpretive dance. Woo! Check me out. Check out these dance moves. Look at this one. Can you see me? Can you see me now? What about now? The Welcome Home podcast is not legal advice, but it is awesome advice. Should you develop diarrhea, vomiting, or breathing complications, please consult your doctor. We have a great episode for you today. We're fortunate to be joined by the venerable Stephen Green, senior partner at Green & Spiegel in Toronto, to discuss border rule changes and getting people across the border during COVID. And we also have a new installment of our Things I Wish I Knew segment for you today. Thanks for joining us. Are you an immigration practitioner working on cases involving temporary residency and work permit applications? Hmm? Stay prepared with Iman Publishing's Temporary Entry into the Canadian Labour Market by Stephen Green, Alexandra Cole, Christina Guida, and Peter Salerno. This handbook will guide you through the avenues and implication of a foreign worker's temporary entry into Canada from applications for work authorizations all the way through to employer compliance and inspections. Get your copy today. Visit emun.ca forward slash T-E-C-L-M and enter promo code T-E-C-L-M 10 for 10% off. Do it now. We would like to thank our very special guest, Stephen Green, for joining us today. Stephen, a former business colleague of ours, my mentor, and of course, the man who made the mullet. Please, Stephen. Oh, Catherine, come on, be nice. (laughs) It's not exactly a mullet. It's more like if the Beach Boys made love to Elton John, Stephen would be their love child. That's That's true. We want, we need some DNA, Stephen. (laughs) So there is love. There's love in everything we say. Uh, Tell us a little more about yourself, please. Introduce yourself to our, our guests today. Well, um, as you indicated, uh, I am a lawyer in Toronto and been practicing immigration law. And I always answer this way because people then can't really figure out how old I am. Let's say uh, 30 plus years. And I'm a believer in the system. Um, I think we've got a pretty good immigration act. I think we've got some great policies around it. And when the policies aren't followed or when the act or regulations aren't followed, then we have discussions in the federal court, like all of us. Um, But I'm pretty much a believer in the system. It really has never, ever let me down uh, when I believed in something was right and that person should be admitted to Canada or perhaps that person shouldn't be admitted to Canada. Interesting. So I think you've been an immigration lawyer pretty much your entire career, right? Yep. Done it all my life. I've um, taught at, let's see, Windsor for a bit. I'm involved in the diploma program at Queens. Um, I was involved and I think both of you were helping me a bit as well at Seneca College when we uh, did the 
practice diploma for uh, people that wanted to get registered as consultants. And, you know, I've been involved in suggesting policies to both the provincial and federal governments. Uh, I was invited when one of our ministers was looking at immigration consultants and how do we make sure that immigration consultants that are involved in our business are regulated properly. So I've given my opinion there. So pretty much live, breathe and eat immigration. Best 90 years of your life, huh? Mm -hmm. 30 plus. (laughs) Back when the legislation was on stone tablets. (laughs) <laughs> you can tell we both work with Stephen for quite some time. There's a, a good comfort level Oh, here. but you've hardly aged. It, actually, it pisses me off a little bit. <laughs> you well, look really good. It's good this is just voice, not uh, actual faces. So I'm pretty happy that way. <laughs> so um, I know you and your team have, as you mentioned, extensive experience with the border. How are you finding it right now with all the COVID provisions? Give us the lay of well, the land in your opinion. You know, it's um, it's certainly tricky in the sense that, you know, our border officers are given new information hourly, minutely, if there's such a word. Uh, you know, as a practitioner, you really have to advise your client that they should contact you before they're going to enter Canada because things change all the time. Uh, You know, over the weekend, we found out, for example, with respect to PCR testing, now there will be an exemption from people living in a certain country that their tests weren't accepted before. And now they've provided an exemption that their test will be accepted. So with COVID, it's really, you know, changed the situation with respect to predictability. And it's hard, you know, obviously on lawyers, uh, consultants, border officers on everyone because things are constantly changing and it's hard and you know you can't you have to teach everybody and you cannot blame a border officer uh, when they don't know the law because it may have changed and you found out before yeah we were actually just having a conversation uh before we got online with you and i was saying that this is the first time in my career like maybe since i articled that I actually feel dumb. Like I, I used to feel like I knew pretty much everything there was to know about immigration. And now there are days where I feel like I don't know much at all. And, you know, people ask me questions and I'm used to being the one that knows the answer and I don't know the answer anymore. I don't know. Do you get that feeling too? Yeah, I do. And it becomes, you know, really frustrating. I think we all have to understand that, you know, when we experience COVID, our, you know, our government had never experienced a pandemic. I mean, we, you know, we had SARS and we had other issues, you know, the, the flu, H1, but nothing at this volume. And the government had to move pretty quickly. You know, you always hear the uh, expression, you know, you got to move the Titanic. Well, they had to move a Titanic. And at the beginning, I think they did a pretty darn good job uh, to protect us as Canadians, both from a health standpoint uh, from a business standpoint to make sure that, you know, temporary foreign workers could come in from a family standpoint. I mean, you'll recall at the beginning where the government was receiving a lot of requests for people that were in relationships where one person was a Canadian and one person was American and that American wasn't able to get in, but the government eventually heard and moved. So you're right. It's, it's moving all the time. And we have to remember as well that, you know, there, there's 
safety protocols that are currently in place. There is security issues. You know, we're all doing things now online. And, you know, you can imagine in a country, for example, like Nigeria or in Pakistan, perhaps, the security isn't that great with respect to the internet. So can we have immigration officers working at home using the internet? I don't think so. So it's very difficult and frustrating. And, you know, a lot of times we don't have answers for our clients. I mean, the, you know, the most common question I'm getting lately is, when do you think I'm going to get my visa? And I say, what's the weather going to be like? Uh, it's really hard to answer that. And, and sometimes they're done, you know, in 10 days. Sometimes they're done in two years. We had a family class application where a person was sponsoring their spouse. And this took six months from Syria. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, that's unbelievable. And yet we have someone who's trying to sponsor their spouse from a European country and they're hitting a year and a half. It's all over the map and frustrating, as you said. Knowing that, what do you do with a client? Like when you're talking to your client, how do you advise them? Do you just say, I don't know it is all over the map? Or how do you temper that? Well, look, I have always believed that communication is the most important thing transparency is the most important thing so a lot of times you know when the the beginning of the pandemic spousal applications were taking you know eight months 12 months it was pretty good years ago as we all remember they used to be two three years so they 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 were coming down tremendously but i you know and now you have to communicate to your client and let them know the facts saying look they're just there's a lot of officers that aren't working that aren't able to work and they want to work, they can't. And you have to let them know what the facts of life are, where it's pretty much a lot of casino gambling with respect to processing times. You'll you'll see that the government has heard about people that have filed applications, all kinds of applications for immigration, for citizenship, for permanent resident cards, work permits, and they don't have they haven't heard anything. You may have had an application in the processing center for eight, nine months. And the government said, you know what? We don't necessarily have time right now to look at your application for a completeness check to make sure it's complete. But we're just going to give you something called the X file, like the X factors you've seen on TV. So when you get an X file, that doesn't mean that your file is being processed. It doesn't really mean anything. It basically means that they've opened up your envelope and they've logged in your file. But you can't find really much about it because there's nothing done on that file. It's a way that the government is saying to you, we've received your document at least. You and know that's what, the one, best that a lot of people are getting. Yeah, what, one thing that I found has been helpful is that I, I always take the client back to first principles and I say, look, there is nothing in the law that says that immigration has to process your file within a specific period of time. There's nothing in the act, there's nothing in the regs, there's nothing even in the policy that says that they have to do it. The only thing we're left with is this common law principle of what a federal court judge might think is a reasonable amount of time to process a case if you were to take it that far. And I find that that way of explaining it, I think, helps people to understand that they, they've got no, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a gray zone and it's not like they've got a statutory right, you know, just because they told you that it was going to take 12 months, it doesn't mean it will take 12 months. Right. And no, I, it, I agree with you. And we're, you know, unfortunately, 
you know, the federal court was really never set up to deal with the situation that you're talking about. But a lot of people are turning to the courts and filing these applications that say, hey, you know, Department of Immigration, I've had my application in for four years or three years. In my opinion, as an applicant, that's a long time. Court, what do you think about it? So, you know, I also think. I think that the uh, government kind of put that on themselves, though, when the moment that they changed where applications can be uh, processed and that they're able to reallocate. So now that you can, now that the government has said we can move files around, I mean, I have files, you know, SDS study permits being in Pakistan being adjudicated over in Poland. So now that they can move those files around, I think that you've got a, a good claim to say, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we should file in federal court for a mandamus because this is not the expectation for timelines anymore. If you can file to a lower processing time period, you know, post, then, then why wouldn't you? But obviously, yeah. it's, there, there's a lot of debate around that, too. Well, you know, when COVID hit us, Uh, The government really moved that Titanic and came out with some amazing policies. Like, I think we were so facilitative uh, in trying to help students, workers, everybody. But the problem now is that, uh, you know, we've heard so much about the supply chain. You can't get chips for your car. You can't get this. You can't get that. Well, I think the supply chain in immigration is broken. There isn't a proper, you know, way to relieve this pressure of processing currently. And that's really now where I think our government has to look at and concentrate. What is the best risk management that they can implement? You know, I I think of a a situation that's driven me crazy uh, is permanent resident card renewals, where if I am in a relationship with a Canadian abroad, be it common law, I'm married to them, and I'm living abroad with that Canadian, and I've been there for three years with that Canadian, four years with that Canadian, and I apply for a renewal of my permanent resident card, why does immigration need to see me? I'm entitled to it as a right, but they're making people come for interviews, that are in relationships with Canadians. And to me, someone should look at that and go from a risk perspective. Why make them come in? Is it for security? Perhaps they want to make sure that the picture matches this or that. But I think from now, let's just give them a little go pass. We'll get them on the next round. If they've done something inappropriately, wrong picture, maybe there is some, you know, a problem with that. But to me, that's a risk management perspective. And then that would relieve some of the officers that are having to do these interviews. And those, like inter- that. those interviews take forever, too. I had a client exactly in the scenario that you describe. And for them to just call him in, like we knew the card was, was ready. They informed us that it was processed and it was approved. Everything was fine. It took them almost 11 months just to call him in to receive the card. Right. I mean, come right. on, that's ridiculous. And these are, these are people who are permanent residents who, yeah. who have vested yeah. rights. So there's lots of things like that, that I think that the government can look at from a risk management perspective and get them off the, you know, the table, let's say, and and, and process those. I mean, citizenship oaths, they were doing in some centers 200 a day. 
Now they're at like 50 a week through Zoom. So, you know, we got to look at technology, use technology as best we can. And I think, you know, we've got to do that to fix the supply chain. Well, I also think, I mean, speaking of technology, in, in my view, um, you know, for a country that has an entire federal ministry mm. um, dedicated to emergency preparedness, this pandemic caught us particularly flat-footed. I mean, I, I cannot believe that there was no, like, it's not like this was entirely unforeseeable, right? I mean, yes, okay, it never happened before, but people have been talking about this for years, that it was only a matter of time before disaster was would strike. So, I mean, I think that decades of lack of investment in basic infrastructure and technology is what got us to this point. I mean, using systems that were so archaic, uh, paper-based files, when everything else in the world has gone online. And, and I think it, it, to, to a point, I agree with you where, okay, like once this struck, the government really has been trying out different things and trying to get caught up. But what, what I find unforgivable is like the 30 years before when they should have been doing all this to get ready and, and they didn't do it. That's the issue that I have. And it's yeah, interesting. I mean, so, you know, ahead, we're, we're living with that. And we have to now take the reality where we weren't in a position and now we've got to fix this system. And we've, you know, I, I would suggest that the government has a sit down with people that work in this system, people, lawyers, consultants, business community and say, hey, we've got a problem here. What are we going to do? I mean, what, there's over a half a million citizenship applications being, you know, in the backlog to be processed, 750,000, uh, you know, applications that are permanent or temporary, something has to be done. So are you sending more people across the border that can go across the border? Are you, you well, saying, you look, for your work permits, don't bother filing at a visa office. If you can go across the border and ask for it at the border point, are, are you doing that? Or are you still doing the, the COVID online process for those people? Well, you know, it's a pretty, if the person can leave the country and come back in, you know, as opposed to flagpoling that you're referring to, that's the safest, I would say. But the flagpoling, it's a problem because CBSA, the border people, they say it's not our responsibility to issue these work permits. IRCC has set up a system. They've got a system through COVID, you know, where, for example, you were approved abroad for your work permit. You can now fill, a, you know, an online application and get it sent to you, things like that. And CBSA is saying, you know what, we've got so many other things. We just don't want to do it. So that's a risk. And then you've got this other risk where some borders have taken the position that, well, you originally came to Canada as a visitor, and then you applied for this work permit, you misrepresented on your original entry, I'm not only going to hit you with an exclusion order, meaning that I don't, you know, I think you're an intending immigrant or for, you know, for whatever other reason, I also think you misrepresented and you're barred for five years. So if you're going to use the border and do a flag polling, I think you have to be very clear with respect to all the risks that your client can encounter. Um, and especially there seems to be a big problem with the ones that have approved LMIAs, 
that have entered Canada from countries that required visas, India, for example, there is a an exemption that you can actually, you know, leave the border between Canada and the U.S. and then come back in and you don't need a new visa and you can apply for your work permit there. But it's pretty dangerous. And I've seen a lot of exclusion orders being issued and even misrep hits. So it, it's tough. But if your client wants to take that risk, I think it's very important that you explain just like, you know, Catherine, you said with respect to timelines, how long does it take? And I'm saying you got to be clear and transparent and let them understand all the risks involved and also search the proper border because some borders because you know it's discretionary a lot of this stuff how they interpret policy some borders are more policy favorable and some are more not so favorable so ask around colleagues and say hey what port of entry do you think would be best for this type of situation that that's why networking is so important too like to to uh, exchange information with your professional colleagues and not only to be the person that always asks the questions, but always, but also to sometimes volunteer information or share information that you might have got that you think other people might be interested in. Because I mean, how else would, like, there's no way that any one of us could know everything about every port of entry. So having that network of people that you can count on to be able to ask a question like, hey, has anybody, you know, have you dealt with, um, you know, this particular border point and how do they sit on this particular issue yeah no I, I I think you're you're so right and it really is the same type of thought process that we go through with respect to business visitors and which to me is probably the hardest definition in the immigration regulations and act what is a true business visitor and you know some ports of entry look at it very strictly some ports of entry look at it in a more broader sense so you're absolutely right networking is very important to understand what is the best port of entry and the best strategy for your client to get the document that they need so in your opinion what is a business visitor like what's the what kind of things would would hint towards business visitor well i always use the example of where if i was a worker building a house and I wanted to see if the house was going up properly and my hands are in my pocket. I'm visiting my house. I'm looking at it, seeing how the house is going. But if I'm there and putting in piping and putting in tiles and my hands are out of my pocket, then I am not there visiting. I'm there really working. And I say, think the same principle kind of applies to business visitors. If someone comes into Canada and they have to take their hands out of their pockets, or they are entering the labor force, then no, they're not business visitors. So you have to watch out for that. Um, if you honestly believe the person is a true business visitor, I'm a big believer in the pocket. So I always like to give my clients a pocket letter and the pocket letter explains what they're going to be doing here inside of Canada. The pocket letter is saying, hi, they're coming to look at the house and they're not putting any tiles down, you know, but if they're putting tiles down, that pocket letter is not going to help them. All too often we have people that say, well, I'm just coming for a business meeting. I'm not working. I'm just going to attend a few business meetings. What kinds of things 
or questions would that spark for you with a client like that who says, well, I'm just, I'm not going to work. I'm just coming for a meeting. Just going to chillax. Well, if they're truly coming for a meeting, then they're absolutely allowed to come as a business visitor. But in my lovely pocket letter, I would have my itinerary. I'm going to you know, one, two, three Young Street for my first business meeting in the morning. And then I'm going to four, five, six Bayview for my next meeting. And then I've got my return airline ticket. In my pocket letter, I explain that my remuneration is my is back home, not here in Canada. I've got a place back home where I work. I've got my home back home. So that's the type of stuff. If I were to come in on a one-way ticket, I don't know if I'm so much as a business visitor that could cause trouble for you. So I just think there's a lot of common sense involved in what a business visitor is. And if the person is entering the labor force, taking their hands out of their pockets, doing more than you would do visiting someone's house to see how it looks, then I think you've got to be cautious and careful. I wonder whether COVID is going to have a ripple effect on things like this. Because I'm thinking if I'm an officer, a question that I might ask is, well, nobody particularly needs to actually meet each other. I mean, everybody's meeting online now. So why do you need to actually come to Canada to have this business meeting? Why can't you just do it on Zoom? Have you encountered any pushback like that? Or can you foresee it happening? Well, certainly there was huge pushback on that with respect to quarantine exemptions when people were coming up for business meetings. And that was the first question the officer would always ask, why do you need to personally be here? Um, I think it's certainly backed off now because, as you know, people that are double vaccinated can you know, come into Canada for their business meetings. Um, I, you know, I, I, I think that if I said I don't want to do a Zoom meeting and I want to meet the person in person, I don't think there should be much pushback on that because that's reasonable, you know, before when you were dealing with quarantine, then, you know, for sure. But, you know, you've got issues now, too. It's really interesting as the government introduced this new test when we all arrive now where you have to get your PCR test and you're supposed to quarantine until you get your results. It's kind of like the quarantine, you know, exemption that you're we had to look at before we had to stay, you know, in your place for 14 days. Now you better be in a position to answer. I've got my business meetings. I know that when I land in Toronto, I have to go to the PCR COVID test at switch health. And it can take between 24 to 72 hours to get a result. What am I going to be doing then? And, and, you know, I've got to have my quarantine plan, my arrive can, but you know, that's where you could get a pushback where the person says, no, I've got to meet the person after the, the second day. And the officer can say, well, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense to me because you know that it could take up to three days to get your results. Yeah, and I think the OICs also say if you're an essential service, uh, you know, who's a specialist or technician coming for installation, repair, et cetera, then you can, as long as you demonstrate that immediate need to be on site. And I think depending on how long it takes for the government to process those PCR tests on arrival. Uh, right yeah. now, I think it seems like there there will be an exemption, but, but it'll be interesting to see because I also noticed on the website it went from in the coming days, this is going to happen to in the coming weeks, this is going to yeah. happen. Yeah, but Catherine, I don't think that if I was a business person, I mean, so many people didn't want to come up for business meetings and they said, you know, I might as well do a Zoom while this new processes involved. I mean, I arrived uh, with a colleague of mine 
uh, let's see, on a Sunday into Canada, I was randomly selected for my PCR test. I got my results within 24 hours in Toronto. My colleague took three days. So, and, and they hadn't instituted yet this quarantine uh, requirement until you get your results. So you can see what's you know going on. I certainly recommend anybody, be it from Canadian citizen to permanent resident, student worker, visitor, you should, if you're coming into Toronto, you should download the Switch Health Portal, which has the portal, I believe it's called ASMO, A-S-M-O, where you give them the basic information so you can kind of jump ahead of everyone else that's trying to download this portal to do their PCR test. So when I arrived, I had an ASMO account. And I went right to the front of the line and I did my PCR test immediately. And I was out. They were so efficient. I was out in about four minutes. But other people were struggling. You know, they have a, uh, a QR code that you put to your phone. Then you have to put in your name, your address, all your contact information. And by the time they finished doing the contact information, I was out already. So I really recommend if you know, you are planning to travel and come back into Canada and coming to Toronto, remember each airport has a different uh, company that they use to do their PCR test. So find out what airport, what company, and download their portal. You'll save a ton of time coming in, especially during busy times. And that's another thing. Try to come in during off hours with all of this. Oh, that That's interesting. I mean, that's a really good value add, um, very practical advice that, that you can tell to people who are coming into the country. Because that, that's not something, I mean, you'd have to go through it really to to know that information. So I, I think that would be super helpful. Uh, that's a really good tip for yeah. our colleagues, for sure. So no, I'm going to really muddy, muddy the waters a little more. Person's coming in for business meetings, but now they're going to be providing some strategic direction. Are, are, are they working or not? And I find the reason that I'm asking these questions, Stephen, is because a lot of our listeners and, and, and myself in my career, I've been finding that the line between business visitor and, you know, a little bit of work starts to, to get muddy. So if a person's starting now to provide strategic direction, so my hands are in my pockets and I'm watching my house being built, but I'm telling people what to do, where to put the no. bricks. Am I working You know, I, I think it's a little grayish i think that you know in building this lovely house that you and i are building right now am i taking the position as a uh, you know a bit of a supervisor there telling people what to do i mean i think you could run into difficulties when you're directing certain people to do certain things unless you're doing you know after sales installation but remember when we're doing after sales installation as a business visitor, that is part of the original agreement and purchase and sale of the equipment that you're buying from outside of Canada. So again, you know, each scenario is different. You have to look at it and make sure you, you know, fall into that area. And you may be able to use, you know, the global skills strategy if you're coming for a short period of time and you want to be involved a little bit in the supervising. But again, we have to look at your job to make sure that you can take advantage of that 30-day or 15-day uh, business visitor to actually work. 
do you, do you ever tell people go with your gut like if you're talking to a client and you start feeling like hmm something's not right I feel like this is a little more work would you play it safe than sorry or are you gonna gamble no I, I would ra- look I would rather play it absolutely safe for a lottery lucky you don't snake eyes flagged as- <laughs> you don't want to be flagged at the border so you know if, if you are you know, you meet an office and you say, I'm a business visitor. And the officer says, you know what? I don't think you're a business visitor. Maybe you are, you know, I need you to get some more documents. I'm turning you away this time. Come back. You're automatically in the system for like five years. You'll be referred every single time. So if a work permit is appropriate, uh, I recommend you get it. It, you know, it provides predictability, transparency, and that's what business is all about. Predictability, transparency. I, I took a page uh, from uh, my financial advisor. You know, whenever you sit down with somebody from a bank or a financial planner or whatever, they always do this risk tolerance test with you and ask you questions about how risk averse to try to figure out how, where you invest your money, right? So I often use that approach with clients. I say, well, look, it, yeah, you can do X and it's possible that it might work but it also might not work. And here's what I think about that. So at the end of the day, I'm not telling you to do it or not do it. That decision is up to you, but it really depends on what is your risk tolerance. Okay, if I tell you that, okay, if you were to cross the border and come back again, I think your chances of having a problem are low, but they're never zero, right? They're never zero. I think they're low. Is that a risk that you're willing to take? And at the end of the day, that's the client's decision. That's not my decision. Because some people, they like to roll the dice. And other people are just like, no, absolutely not. I, I'm, I'm a zero risk kind of person. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure, for sure, for sure. I agree with you. You mentioned after sales service. What kinds of documents would you put into that application or that request at the border? Well, definitely you want to have the contract of sales if you're using the wonderful NAFTA. If it's a lease of equipment, you know, you don't use NAFTA, you use an other provision. You definitely have to have that document with you. And you want to make it easy for the officer because, you know, they don't have much time. And you don't, not that you don't love our border officers, you really don't want to speak to them that long. So you want to identify where it shows the installation or the training that are involved in that particular document. And then you have to justify why you have the specialty or the ability to do that type of stuff. Uh, so definitely, you know, a resume, you want to have perhaps a letter from the the person that sold the equipment saying, hey, Catherine, you know, you're an expert in figuring out how to use that mic in front of you and we've sold it and you're going to train them on how to speak and, uh, you know, not bump themselves into the mic or speak too close, that type of stuff. So you just want to make sure that they've got the documents because you as a person entering the border have the obligation. The officer has the obligation to look at everything you present to them, but you have the obligation at the end of the day to satisfy that officer that you have the proper documentation so they can make a positive decision and admit you. Yeah, I often in my submission letters will break down that after sales service provision kind of to say, to make it as simple as possible, like a one pager. Here's the original contract. These are the subcontracts to present date showing the continued service agreement. This is evidence the equipment was purchased outside of Canada. This is this person's particular expertise. I, I literally bullet point it so then the border officers can just 
look at that one page summary and all those supporting documents that you mentioned are are kind of behind no, it. I, I, I agree. Good. You know, if you can make it simple, do it simple. You know, I, I remember seeing submissions from some people uh, that are representing someone coming through the border and they do like a 15, 20 page letter. I'm going, OK, enough. Who has time to read this? No one does. And, you know, I, I say the same thing with emails. If you're corresponding with an officer through email back and forth, sweet and simple and direct to the point. Don't write a 30 page essay. Yeah, I find that um, sometimes when you talk around the point too much, you end up obfuscating the actual issue. So it looks at some point like you're deliberately trying to avoid hitting the point, and you might actually have a point in there somewhere, but it's buried under a mountain of garbage, and that's not helpful. Yeah, I agree. No, I agree. So, Stephen, let's predict the future here, if I may, with respect to cross-border travel. Um do you think that uh, COVID was the test run for future pandemic situations? Do you think that things are going to lighten up a little bit? Or do you think this is going to become a new norm? Or maybe a new norm for a few more years? You know, I, I think, you know, we have to, I sound like all the people talking on the, the radio and TV, we have to talk to the scientists. Um, I, I think we really have to understand it. Um, I think we've learned from this situation a great deal. You know, Chantel talked about proper uh, systems in place that we can go online and prepare for things like this. Uh, I think we we really still don't know enough about COVID and how to react to it. Did closing down the border really help us? I'm not so sure it did. Did it help our politicians? I'm sure it did. Uh, if you were to ask the average person on the street, should we close the borders to certain visitors? They'd all say, yes, yes, yes. But when you really looked at the science, it really, it wasn't necessarily relevant to it, but yet it was really relevant to the politicians. So we're certainly luckier than the United States has turned this whole thing politically upside down with respect to their decisions on COVID. I think we're way ahead uh, with science and trying to do it properly. Look, we got caught at the beginning. We had a very rough time at the beginning. And I think our politicians have learned from it. And I respect them for now, not making it political and really basing it on science and, and stuff like that. So we'll have to see. It's hard to predict. I think that we're going to learn to live with this just like we do with the flu. When I got the flu last year, I was sick in bed for three days. When I had COVID, I was sick in bed for a longer time. But I think we'll, you know, we'll learn how to deal with it. We'll understand it. Um, this new variant that's out there, supposedly, it isn't, you know, doesn't create as bad of symptoms, and it may be just like the flu. So I think we have to look at everything and really apply common sense to the process, uh, and we should be okay. Well, I'll tell you as well that, you know, they say necessity is the mother of invention. And one thing I can say about this pandemic is it certainly kicked our ass into the 21st century, because I think that if, if we had not been forced into the situation, um, the technology um, innovations that the government has made during this time, I'm, I'm not sure they ever would have bothered making them or if they had it had been another 10 years. So, yeah, but, I mean, and, and it just accelerated the pace. I agree. 
it's been a great thing in that sense. And it's interesting now, I think there's going to be a lot more pressure on the government with respect to the supply chain of processing things because people are saying, do you know what? We need these workers now. Before, everyone kind of understood, things were new, da 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 Not anymore. People are saying, do you know what? I need my worker. The universities and colleges are saying, you know what? We need our students. The people involved in relationships, I get COVID. They couldn't travel. Not anymore. And I think that the pressure is going to build and build. It's really like a tsunami coming if this department does not start to fix the supply chain in the immigration area. Do you think that it would help if CBSA and IRCC maybe cooperated a little more? Or do you think that, because to me, I find they're quite separate with the way that they're interpreting things. And I find that they're not quite fitting together the way that they should. And I think there's a very big disconnect. I think they, that, that might, them cooperating together a little more might be helpful. What's your thoughts on that? No, no, I, I agree with that. Look, we all know that IRCC creates the policy and at the border, CBSA implements it. It would kind of be nice for them to work a little closer and, you know, fix things. I agree with you. I think that would help a lot in our supply chain fixing. Yeah, because I can tell you at the at the beginning of COVID, we our team started to notice that we didn't need all of those letters. And we were processing right at the border for all the exemptions. And it, it was really but the, fantastic. Remember now, the decision-making tree, it's like, it's unbelievable. You've got the airline. It's really interesting. The airline implements all of the information into the system. So when I go to check-in to fly out, or let's say to fly into Canada, I, I go to the front counter and they say, Stephen, can we see your double vaccination? They put in the computer, Stephen Green is double vaccinated. Then they say, can I see your PCR test with your QR code? Stephen's QR code is done. So that's the airline's responsibility. CBSA doesn't get involved in that, nothing. Then we have to go to the arrive can and that's our responsibility as travelers to fill in the pertinent information, copy of my vaccination, my quarantine plan, where I'm coming from, my port of entry. So that's my involvement. Then we've got immigration's involvement that creates the policy. Then you've got the CBSA officer that makes the final decision with respect to entry. And then now we've got public health that's also involved. So you have five organizations or groups, including yourself, that are involved in the determination and analysis if a person should be allowed to come into the country. And I think we've got to streamline that and get that better. Yeah, it's become more like persuading all of those particular entities to, you know, let the person in. Because, uh, oh, I mean, I think the, at the beginning of COVID, the biggest hiccup with respect to cross-border travel was the airline. Because CBSA knew all the rules. The airlines were like, are we going to be fined or not? Mm-hmm. So yep, um, no, for sure. I agree with you. The it's, airlines it's... are the gatekeepers from outside of the country, for sure, for now. Yeah. Yeah. That's so a lot I, of power. It, it is. Yeah. And, you know, as we mentioned, with respect to supply chain, if the airline says no, just because they're being cautious, 
now that can impact the supply chain. That widget maker in Canada is not going to get fixed. There's right. no emergency right. repairs happening. And, you know, maybe that widget but maker you know, is for Catherine, something else. We could go ahead if we're worried about public health and vaccinations and all of this. You know, we've got that ETA system for Europeans to come in or people that are exempt from a visa, except the United States. Well, why not ask everyone who applies for an ETA to upload their vaccination certificate, take that away from the airline? And why not ask them to upload the PCR test, take that away from the airline? And, you've, you know, you, you've solved a huge problem because, you know, there have been so many people that have been denied entry incorrectly many times uh, by the airline. And they're not the CBSA officers, but they've turned into that in many respects sometimes. And that, how do you action that? How do you remedy that, right? Um, it's hard. It's not really like hard because can... then the airline calls the, you know, the local embassy. Can I do this? What do I do? Or they call CBSA or they call public health, all that. It's really difficult. Well, I guess we're uh, we're out of time for today, Stephen. Uh, the key takeaway for me is to instruct all the business visitors to just play pocket pool. That was the most important piece of advice that I learned today. Um, Catherine, did you want to wrap it up? Sure. Thank you so much, Stephen. Uh, I think our house is coming along pretty fine. Uh, <laughs> let's make sure the TV room's pretty big. We'll, we'll invite everyone listening to come on over for some popcorn and a movie once COVID's gone. And uh, thank you so much for your insight on cross-border travel and, of course, the COVID provisions. Great. Thank you. What are the differences between criminal and serious criminal inadmissibility? I don't know, Chantal. Maybe about three drinks? Also understand the hurdles to overcoming medical inadmissibility. Learn all you need to know in Inadmissibility and Remedies, the third volume in Iman's newly minted immigration law series. This concise and contemporary text will guide you through the process, procedure, and strategic elements involved in helping a client overcome claims of inadmissibility, making this an indispensable resource for immigration consultants and all immigration practitioners. Get your copy today by visiting imond.ca forward slash IR and enter promo code IR10 for 10% off. Welcome to Things I Wish I Knew. Dooby dooby doo. Thank you, Chantal, for that extraordinary introduction. One of the things I really wish someone had told me at the beginning of my law career was to make sure that I hire once and hire well. Really invest the time interviewing people, getting to know them, exploring their resumes, and making sure I understand whether or not they're going to fit into the culture, and they're eager to learn. Because someone who is smart but maybe doesn't have all of the experience or qualifications can still do the job. And if they fit into the culture, that's just an added bonus. Yeah, for me, I, I agree with you totally. Uh, for me, culture has become increasingly important over time. Like When I was younger and less experienced, when I would hire somebody, I would look mostly for qualifications. And now, I mean, I find when you advertise a position, most of the people who apply for it are basically qualified. Uh, most of them are intelligent. Most of them have relevant experience. But where it separates the wheat from the chaff for me is the personality fit. 
and um, not just the personality, but also the uh, the relationship fit in terms of the team. So, um, you know, do they demonstrate uh, an ability to work cooperatively and to really add something to the atmosphere in the firm? Having that attitude of let's join together and accomplish the task together and get what needs to be done out that door, I think is really critical. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't care how smart you are. If you're a maverick, that's not going to roll in my firm. You've got to be a team player for sure. I agree. I also, do you think that during COVID has changed culture in, in the firms? I think it's become harder to um, keep morale up and to foster those relationships when a lot of people aren't there every day. And I find that as an employer, I have to try a lot harder to keep the, the unity within the team. It used to be so easy to just go over to someone's desk, grab a coffee with them and chat about a case and get some input and feedback. You can't do that during COVID if you're working remotely. So our team has found that during COVID, that remote work has definitely impacted culture to a point. So I agree. It's become a little bit more challenging. We try and have informal wine and cheese sessions by Zoom or Teams, that kind of thing, just to loosen it up and and get to know each other a little more. Things I wish I knew. We would like to thank our very special guest, Stephen Green, the man who made the mullet cool. Your insights and helpful hints on managing cross-border travel during COVID was incredibly helpful. Thanks, Stephen. The Welcome Home podcast is produced, engineered, and edited by Alex Ross of Never Sleeps Network. Directed and published by Danan Haas, and marketing by Katrina Harley. For our listeners, Emond is offering 10% off titles in the Immigration Law series. Just visit emond.ca forward slash welcome home immigration and enter code welcome home at checkout. And we want to hear from you. Please email us with your questions or topics at welcomehome at emond.ca or leave us a voicemail at phone number 416-975-3925, extension 227. My name is Danan Hawes, and I'm the senior publisher at Iman Publishing. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Welcome Home podcast. We at Iman Publishing are committed to providing best-in-class immigration law content, including our immigration law series edited by Chantelle Deloge and Catherine Sawicki, our best-selling treatise, Canadian Immigration and Refugee Law, A Practitioner's Handbook, 3rd Edition, new initiatives like the Welcome Home podcast, as well as our EMOND exam prep ICCRC practice exams, and a host of immigration law casebooks and textbooks for law school, university, and college students. EMOND is also the proud provider of most of the required resources for the Queen's Immigration and Citizenship Law Program for Immigration Consultants.